everybody. Welcome back to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor, the company. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, Radical Candor's chief marketing officer and your host for the podcast, Radical Candor, how to kick ass at work without losing your humanity. So Kim, one of the things you were talking to me about last year, I was working on a lot of competing deadlines, and I was feeling kind of stressed about how I was going to get everything done. And you said, I just needed to let things go splat, which, <laughs> you know, is a, is a really interesting term, and it brought a lot of stuff to mind. But can you help me understand what splat is? Well, if you're juggling too many balls, you've got to drop some of them. <laughs> you just got to let them go. Uh, so I think there's a song in the movie Frozen about this, about letting them go. <laughs> uh, so, so which my children hate. I, I understand the difficulty of dropping balls. It, it is a very uncomfortable feeling. Sometimes you have to just drop the balls. And that is hard because you may actually drop the thing that's not the thing you want to drop. Mm-hmm you may actually drop the wrong thing. So one of the things that can help us feel more relaxed to identify what the higher priority items are, what the lower priority items are, and to consciously drop, to be aware of what you're dropping rather than just drop something because you've got too many things in the in the air at the same time. When you explained that to me, like it was a, such a relief. And not only do you put them on a list, but what your recommendation to me was you should celebrate the fact that you're not doing the things that are on this list. It's just as important as getting the things done that are on your actual list of things that you do want to do. When you do have a sense of what's important and you can do this sort of prioritization for yourself, that, that's like a huge relief to, to see that as, uh, as beneficial. What's, what's hard, I find, for me as a self-identified recovering perfectionist to, to let things go splat and to watch them go splat. And he said, you just yeah, you have to celebrate them. It's so counterintuitive for me to celebrate watching something go splat. And so I think, but, but to what Jason is saying is really helpful. It's like, if I see this thing dropping because it's in service of something that's actually even more important. So there is some sort of reframing that needs to happen. Do you think that's right, Kim? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, th- I think that a lot of people get a lot of pleasure out of a to-do list because it helps us feel more in control. It helps us know what we've done, what we haven't done. It, it feels good to check things off the to-do list. And so if you can harness that instinct to what you're not going to do, and you can make a list of the things you're not going to do, and you can check them off because you didn't do them, uh, it's, very, it's a very fast way to feel uh, a sense of accomplishment. <laughs> uh, here are all the things I didn't do today, and I'm going to feel really good that I didn't do them. And so I think it can, you, you, you don't want to fight yourself. You're never going to win a fight with yourself. So if you have the instinct of the to-do list and the to-do list is starting to ruin your life, uh, you can try just throwing it away and letting things go splat unpredictably. That actually works for me. In fact, when I threw away my to-do list and just, I didn't at first have a proactive forbearance list, I just threw it away. I decided my mind is a filter. And if I forget to do something, it meant my mind had decided it wasn't important. (laughs) But I think for a lot of people that just doesn't work. And so consciously deciding what you're not going to do and putting it on a list uh, works better. I think 
the other thing that comes up for people when they think about what they're not going to do is often the people who are even aware of this feeling are people who may or may not be perfectionists, but are motivated to do a good job, care about the work that they're doing. And are always feeling like they're behind, right? So there's this feeling of uh, of being overwhelmed and combined with a desire to do more and the belief that you're not doing enough. Right? It's like yeah. those that it's like that trifecta of of internal conversation that causes you to develop anxiety about this and makes it feel really bad to say that you're not to even say, to even consider that you're not going to do something. And I think that there's this mythology that we can do all the things that are on our list, all the things that we want to do. We don't tend to see our cognitive resources, our uh, energy resources. We don't tend to understand the finite nature of those things. And so we undervalue them when we define the list to begin with. And then we've set ourselves an impossible task, one in which we're always going to feel inadequate (laughs) of our ability to actually reach the goal of doing all the things that we put on the list. So I think there's like there's this psychological element to list making that, you know, I, I can understand why it'd be very liberating to, to let go of that list because the list may itself be a, to- a tool that is oppressing you. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Well, and Jason, it's interesting you bring up resources and kind of cognitive resources, emotional resources, and really energy resources. And you had shared uh, when the crisis was first starting a piece or, uh, that really talked about energy and and through the metaphor of spoons. And I only have so many spoons of kind of energy in a day for someone with limited energy resources. Do you want to share a little bit about why you shared that and what what you got as a message from that? Absolutely. Um, It's called the spoon theory. And and the basic idea is that we all have a finite amount of energy. And uh, the author defined that in terms of number of spoons. So you might say, um, that I woke up today and I had 50 spoons. So like, that might be a normal person's day. They have 50 spoons, meaning they can do 50 things in that day. And the reason she wrote this is because uh, she was living with a, a chronic autoimmune disorder. And what she found was like just existing with this autoimmune disorder, some days she would wake up and she would only have a handful of spoons because she'd be in pain or she'd be really fatigued or something else. And she had to battle with this uh, on a daily basis. And it was really hard for other people to understand because most people who don't fight some sort of chronic physical or mental illness really are, are living in the myth of, I have an, essentially an unlimited number of spoons to use on any given day. Uh, and so when they do go through some kind of trauma or they do encounter a global pandemic, for example, and all of a sudden they realize like, oh my, like I don't have as many spoons as I thought I did, right? Like I I used to be able to get up at six, get started with work at seven 30 work until seven o'clock at night, work out, go to bed, wake up and do it again. And now it's like, you know, I'm lucky if I'm, I can get up at six, get through breakfast by seven 30. Like maybe I've showered and walked the dog by eight 30. And like now I'm like just opening my email at nine o'clock and I'm feeling like I'm lazy, but the metaphor is really helpful because it helps you understand that this is a finite resource and it's something that we have to manage. And some days, you know, uh, the author said like they would get so bad that, you know, she would wake up and she'd only have three spoons and she'd have to use one of them to get out of bed. And then she'd have two spoons left for the rest of the day. And so like by the time she, did just the basic things to feed herself, um, you know, take care of herself. 
like she really didn't have any, any energy left. And, and that's what she was describing is like to live with a chronic illness. And I think in this moment, we're all living with a chronic illness of sorts, which is the constant stress of trying to be productive um, as human beings in a pandemic, whatever that definition of productive is. And a lot of us are only now learning that there are limitations. Like we can, there can be such a tax on our energy. It can be impossible, literally impossible to get all the things done that we would otherwise like to. And I, I think if you're not a parent living at home with kids, maybe you have a friend who is, and you can start to appreciate just like how many fewer spoons that parent has given how many of the spoons that they're using to you know take care of their kids, feed them, homeschool them, whatever else is needs to happen and take care of them than they might have otherwise had if they had access to childcare or the kids were going to school or whatever else was going on. So just as like a, a for a concrete example for people to think about how different the situation is now than it was before. Yeah, the the, the spoon allocation is very different also if you're if you're living alone and you're taking care of yourself than than if you're taking care of other people. That also takes a lot of spoons. Mm -hmm. I remember at one point when I was living in New York, I was living alone and I had a a terrible flu and it was like a holiday weekend in New York. So it was deserted and it was really very difficult to take care of myself alone. Well, and as someone that lives alone, I found myself at the beginning of the crisis, you know, who was using all of these dishes and why were the dishes <laughs> needing to be washed so often? And there were these things about couples needing to create an imaginary third worker to sort of blame all of the dishes on. And so I had to create kind of an imaginary person creating a lot of spoons that I needed to wash those dishes. So we all have our our ways to adapt. I think underneath what we're all talking about is some feeling about being overwhelmed. You know, how do we deal with the people working with us and for us who feel overwhelmed? How do we deal with being overwhelmed? And it brings up, of course, the larger philosophical question, if we are ever just whelmed. And so knowing we are going to talk about (laughs) being overwhelmed, I I do want to quote from 10 Things I Hate About You, um, and and I do, if I can call the characters, one is called Chastity, and she says, I know you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? And Bianca answers with, I think, a lot of wisdom, I think you can in Europe. <laughs> so for those of us listening in Europe, we understand that you might feel whelmed. For the rest of us, uh, this idea of overwhelm, and you know, I think one of the reasons why I started practicing meditation decades ago was to deal with feeling overwhelmed. And so one of the ways that I deal with that feeling is actually through breathing. And it's it's so simple, and yet it actually can help calm down the nervous system. I know it sounds so obvious, but it's it's interesting. I have noticed that often when I get stressed, I actually stop breathing. One thing I noticed about myself when I drive into a garage and there's a a, a height barrier, like, you know, six feet, 10 inches, and I'm in an SUV, I duck. I hold my breath (laughs) and I duck to try to squeeze the car in as if somehow me holding my breath and ducking will get the the car in under the the roof. And I just, it's, it's a pattern that I've noticed. And so the other pattern is not giving myself deep breaths to, to calm myself. So for me, breathing has been a source of managing the, the whelming. Um, Kim, Jason, how do you manage feeling overwhelmed? I think for me, the when I am feeling overwhelmed, the driving emotion is often, it's not anxiety, but rather guilt. I have a real strong relationship with guilt. And it's usually feeling guilty for not having done things. 
for, for the things I haven't done or feeling guilty because there are two things that I'm supposed to be doing at the same time and I can only do one thing at a time. And so no matter which thing I'm doing, I feel guilty about doing it. For me as a mother of twins, this was, this was intense. Uh, this was intense when they were babies. There was one point when I was feeding one of them and the other one was crying. And then I started crying because I could only feed, some mothers of twins can feed two at once, but I, I never mastered that. And my husband walked in and one child was crying and I was crying. <laughs> one was feeding happily. And I realized like as the mother of twins, you're, you're never winning. You're never winning. You're, one is always going to be unhappy. Not all. I mean, that's an exaggeration. It's it's a great delight to be a mother of twins. I don't. Mean you put the win. You put the win in twins, kids. <laughs> um, it is especially as they get older. You begin to get a twin dividend. But I think we're we're all feeling that right now. We're supposed to be doing so many things at once, and and for me that the 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 problem of feeling overwhelmed is one of feeling guilty. And that is why the proactive forbearance list is so very helpful because I write down the things that I am not going to do and I feel good about not doing them instead of feeling guilty about not doing them. For a long time, I would have a long to-do list and I wouldn't go to sleep until I got through it. And if I did go to sleep before I got through it, I felt guilty. <laughs> and then I realized I... Part of what I need to do for other people is to get enough sleep. I'm really awful to be with if I haven't gotten enough sleep. So I think letting go of the guilt uh, can help a lot with this feeling of being overwhelmed. I think it's it's so interesting because part of it's understanding for each person what what is underneath it. So for you, it might be guilt. For me, it might be that sort of perfectionist, never enough. I have to do all the things. So if I have multiple things to do in that moment and I, I feel overwhelmed because I feel like I can't do either of them and I feel paralyzed. And so for me, that's where the breathing helps so that I can actually create, okay, what in this moment will best serve? And yet knowing ourselves and our triggers well enough to know so we can make a more informed choice is, is so important. So for you, it might be guilt. For someone else, it might be something different. Jason, what's coming up for you? When you think about feeling overwhelmed, are think, you overwhelmed by thinking about overwhelmed? I am a little, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed in this moment. Uh, I, I noticed that something that drives me is um, I, I'm a harmony seeker in, in the world. Like I, I, I like things to be as harmonious as possible. And that doesn't mean I, I dislike or, or shy away from disagreement necessarily, but it does mean that it bothers me deeply when I feel like there is something that is, causing uh, a disruption to myself or, or to others. And so often when I'm feeling overwhelmed, it, it has to do with the existence of disharmony. As you can imagine, the world is a very disharmonious place. <laughs> it's a hard so place for it, you, Jason. Yeah. So it, it's like very easy for me to become overwhelmed. And I noticed that my reaction to being overwhelmed, my first reaction, my not my unconscious reaction is actually to sort of like shut down or procrastinate. It's not like I work harder. It's that like I retreat into my shell. And, and that's helpful in the sense of like, I, I don't necessarily, at least not anymore, have the like workaholic tendency where I, I would like amp up the, the work. And as you know, often if they're, so let's say disharmony is being caused by a conflict. Often the best way to resolve a conflict is not to like work harder at it and like really go at that person until the conflict is resolved, right? 
conflict is best resolved by taking a step back, giving people a chance to cool down, etc. So that pattern of, of retreating is probably an adaptive pattern, right? And even though it's un- unconscious, the problem is that it can be really hard to reactivate myself and say, like, now is actually the time to reinvest in this conversation or have a talk to this person or deal with this particular issue that's coming up. And so then I'll move into the second mode, which is distraction. (laughs) So retreat (laughs) and then distraction, which is like, I'll do a whole bunch of other things that don't really matter very much as a way to feel like I'm being productive without actually addressing the issue (laughs) that I really need to be addressing. And so what, what I found is like the positive pattern that I adopted over time is when I feel myself start to retreat, I start to question like, why is it that I'm feeling like things are out of control and what is really important to me in this moment? And that a question of what is really important to me in this moment has been a really helpful guiding principle because often what I discover is, is that, you know, if I'm honest with myself, the thing that might be most important in, in that moment is to like take care of myself. So maybe it's to meditate, take a breath, exercise, whatever it is, because I don't feel stable enough to, to actually help the situation improve. Or maybe it is like, you know, I need to work on this relationship. It's not so much about resolving this particular conflict, but I really care deeply about this person. So like, I want to figure out a way to move that relationship forward. And if it's a work problem, often it's like I've allowed the problem to become big and complex as opposed to small and and manageable. And so if it's a work problem, it's often breaking the big problem down into smaller problems. But without understanding like what the priority is, I think it's actually really easy for me anyway, to like either retreat and become sort of non-active or to start doing a whole bunch of things that don't really matter, which also can create unintended consequences. Eventually, I wind up in Kim's land of feeling guilty that I haven't actually addressed the, the underlying thing. But that has, for me, it feels like a process of prioritization and, and like revisiting what is, what is most important. What's coming up as you're sharing that, Jason, is one of my favorite books ever, by Anne Lamott, who wrote Bird by Bird. I love that Instructions book. on writing and life and just being so studious and wanting to get my homework done. And she tells the story growing up of her brother who had to do this art project about birds and he was feeling really overwhelmed. And the father says, you know, just take it bird by bird. So I feel like, Jason, that's really the instruction is like, breaking down, I know for me, much of my source of overwhelm comes by big tasks that seem, well, how do I even get there? There's 10 steps away. It's like, well, what is that one next step? And I think that's where radical candor is so helpful, right? Because it's in that moment, what's that one next step that I can take in terms of the conversation? One practice that we can invite the the listeners to try out is something that we do uh, from Search Inside Yourself, the program out of Google that I teach. It's just a three-breath practice. And so just on the first breath, when you're breathing in and breathing out, you can just say to yourself, breathing in, breathing out. This just helps kind of settle the mind. On the second breath, relaxing the body so you can drop your shoulders or whatever feels relaxing. And then on the third breath, you ask yourself, just like you did, Jason, what's important now? And it can be an open question. And so if you're going into a difficult conversation with someone, something like, I want to be curious, I want to show up with some empathy. Kim just did a talk on, on having to do layoffs and firing people and how to do this with caring. So even before a conversation like that, my intention is, how can I show up with humanity and kindness for someone before a difficult conversation? 
And in fact, that breathing exercise is so nice because you might realize you can put the conversation on the proactive forbearance list. In fact, one of the things that sort of to Jason's point about taking a step back, one of the things that we say about giving feedback, especially critical feedback, is that it's, it's important to say the important things, but it's also important to realize what's not important. So uh, that's a lot of importance in one sentence. It was a but, very important sentence. <laughs> it was a very important sentence. But one of, one of the pieces of advice that I think is really important for working relationships and, and perhaps even more important for relationships with those who you're sheltering in place with is leave three unimportant things unsaid every day. Another analogy is comes from a friend of mine was getting married on an island with a very weak septic tank. Have I already told this story? No. No? Okay. So she was getting married on an island with a very weak septic tank. And over every toilet was a sign that said, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. And her godfather stood up at the rehearsal dinner and said, these are words to love by. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. And what he meant, of course, is if it's important, deal with it. If it's an important conflict, deal with it. But if it's an unimportant conflict, it's okay to let it go. Radical candor is not about nitpicking every single small thing. And I think something that that's coming up for me as we're talking about this, that feels really important, especially for leaders who are listening to this podcast. And that doesn't necessarily mean managers, but anybody who's leading the work of other people is that often people will come to you in crisis and their expression of the crisis is I have so much to do. I can't possibly do it all. I need you to help me, you know, prioritize my task list, like help me figure out like which of these things to do and which of these things I shouldn't do. Or maybe they're not even that level of conscious and they're just like, I'm tired all the time. I can't figure out how to keep up with the work. I feel like my work is suffering. And I think occasionally our instinct, especially if we're good at getting things done, is to like to do exactly what they've asked, which is like look at their task list and prioritize it for them, to like <laughs> micromanage them. When in fact, they need that guidance. They need to understand how to differentiate between what is actually important and what is unimportant. They need your support in figuring out how to elevate the things that are important and to put aside the things that are unimportant. And sometimes that is, it is really about you communicating like what is a priority and what is not a priority. But often it's really just giving them permission to let things go splat. Right to say, I, I agree with you. I'm looking at this is this too much stuff on this list. Like, let's talk about what we can get to now and what might have to come later. And that doesn't necessarily mean you take things off the list forever. They don't necessarily have to go on proactive forbearance, but we need to stop looking at the big problem and start breaking that big problem down to smaller problems. And that really does, I think it helps to start with what is important now. Like what is actually important in this moment. I think in addition to what's important, it's it's a good idea to ask people what do you enjoy doing? What gives you strength? Because if there are things on your list that you hate doing, maybe someone else would enjoy that job. And it's one of the beautiful things about working with a team is what I love to do more than anything in the world is to sit alone and edit. <laughs> a lot of other people don't have that love, uh, would, would find that like a miserable task. I will do, it's one of the divisions of labor 
in my marriage is I will write all the thank you notes. And my husband does, he puts it in the envelope and puts the stamp on it and gets it in the mailbox. Uh, Cause he doesn't mind doing that. He hates to write. I love to write for some reason. I have a mental block about putting things in envelopes, putting stamps on them. And I love so, that you're still writing thank you notes with pen and well, paper. Well, my mother will tell you it hasn't happened in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> When we got married, there were a lot of thank you notes involved in getting married. I agree with you, Kim. I think going back to this question of energy management, like so often we, we have this weird uh, obsession with a sort of hero mythology where we think like, in order to be good at what I'm doing, I need to be able to do everything. And it totally negates the value of being on a team. It's like <laughs> yes. actually counterproductive. And, and we know this from research also to Amy's point about the data is like the best teams have a diverse set of perspectives and skills. And there is actually specialization on those teams. Not everyone is doing everything, but people are doing the things that they're really great at and that give them energy. Like that is what the best teams are actually doing. And so this idea of like, I'm looking at my list and I see a bunch of stuff on here, which I absolutely dread having to do. That doesn't mean everybody would feel the same way about those tasks. Uh, and, and so like asking for help could be really valuable. And Kim, you've said this before, which is especially in these most challenging moments, People in helping professions, which is I would put manager in the helping profession category, are looking for ways to help. And you asking for help is not actually burdening them, but it is it is liberating them. Do the thing that they most want to do, which is to be helpful to you. And so making sure that we're not afraid to ask for help when we need it, especially in these challenging times when it feels like we should be doing more on our own and we shouldn't be asking questions and we should just be putting our head down. It may be counterintuitive, but it may not actually have the opposite effect. And if if we can talk further about what help looks like. So in other words, help isn't my help for you is I'm going to now do your to-do list for you and prioritize. It's actually showing them what's important. So one of the things is, Maybe they don't have clarity on your expectations of them of why you're prioritizing those things that way. Have you been clear about what something is and isn't important because it's in service of the broader goals? And do we have alignment on understanding there? And I think one of the ways that we can be kind and helpful is actually being clear in what is important to our team and what's not. Yes. And also giving people permission not to do the things that they find unimportant or unpleasant. Like maybe there's another way to get those things done, the the important to unpleasant things. So I feel like I'm going to be sending some follow-up emails about all the things that I find unpleasant and see if you're okay with (laughs) those balls going flat. (laughs) I might, I I will be fine with it. I will be fine with it, but I think we should put them on the proactive forbearance list. I think the problem with the advice I gave you was that you couldn't take it. It was so difficult for you to watch things go splat. But I think putting the unimportant things down in a conscious and deliberate way is maybe easier. So for example, if the specific case was that we were at an event. And when you have a lot of deliverables for an event from a marketing communications perspective, you don't want to have, you know, a sign that says radical dander instead of radical candor. <laughs> that like, would be good, you know, actually. <laughs> although, it, but maybe that's good. I personally wouldn't want to have a big billboard, you know, with a, with a typo yeah. on it. So part yes. of it's like there's errors that it, there's a splat and then there's just there's things that are just not acceptable. And how do you define, you know, if that means I have to stay up till 10 to change the D to a C, if any remembers the adventures of Letterman, um, you know, so that <laughs> radical gender becomes radical candor, you know, I will stay up to 10 to do that. Is that 
Yes, because it was not on your proactive forbearance list. But the reason you're able to focus on getting the D turned into a C is that there are 10 other things you decided not to do. The proactive forbearance list does not mean that you get to go party and not do your work. (laughs) The proactive forbearance list means you're going to do what you can possibly do given the constraints that are in a reality. So the reason that you have the energy to pour into the things that are the most important is because you haven't done all these less important things. Back to the spoons. Back to the spoons. Yes. I think that's a really interesting point, which is it's not always possible for us alone to know what is important and what is not important. This is why it's so valuable to have these conversations openly. And I think in organizations where it is seen as a sign of failure, that you are thinking about not doing something or you're not going to get something done, what you lose is the possibility of creating a better outcome because maybe the work can be redistributed to somebody else. It doesn't mean it's globally unimportant, right? Just because you can't get to it or it's not something that you want to do doesn't mean it's globally unimportant. And so I would encourage people not to think about proactive forbearance as like something you generate in a vacuum, but instead something that you generate through conversation. And what I really hope is that teams talk about their lists more openly, like leaders as well, because I do have a lot of empathy. Leaders in this moment, you know, they're facing the same levels of uncertainty. And so, you know, what we're saying is you want to put some effort into actually defining what's important and what's not important. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's work that you have to do alone. And I think it's really impossible to do a lot to do effectively alone. And so the encouragement is not to go back into a darkened room and like write things on this list and or to Kim's point, write so many things on your proactive forbearance list that your your to do list says party, but instead to to open this conversation up and to talk about the things that we're doing the things that are are going splat and what maybe belongs on that proactive forbearance list as opposed to thing that is either unintentionally or unknowingly going splat or is causing anxiety because we're not addressing it. And I don't mean to be a killjoy. Party can be one of the things on your to-do list. <laughs> the party but it should only on be you. one of the things. It yeah. shouldn't be the only thing on well, your to-do list. Do you think there's a benefit in having these proactive forbearance lists as like in a shared Google document that people have visibility into the things that we're not doing? Huge benefit. Huge benefit. Because you can put on your proactive forbearance list. I'm not doing this, not because it's unimportant, but because I I can't stand doing it anymore. Of course you can stand it, but I don't want to do it anymore. And maybe someone else will say, I'm happy to take that. So there's a couple of things coming up for me here. When you're on a team and you're feeling overwhelmed and everyone else is feeling overwhelmed, the first thing you need to do is manage your own sense of feeling overwhelmed. And then the second thing you need to do is to help other people manage theirs. And these are two distinct tasks. Uh, You can't possibly help other people with their proactive forbearance list until you've done your own first. Uh, But once you've all done it, you can really help each other decide what not to do. You can help each other redistribute work so that everybody's doing work that they like to do instead of work that they hate to do. And maybe you can figure out what is important to do later, but that you can't do right now. 
We'll move into the checklist. One thing I want to add to what Kim just mentioned is why it's so important to manage your own emotional overwhelm is because emotions are contagious. And so people will pick up on your overwhelm. And if you're the manager or a leader of a team, it will be sort of exponentially contagious. So extra important to manage your own feeling overwhelmed and then in service of the people you're working with, the proactive forbearance list, et cetera. So today's checklist is about how to get things done when you or the people you're working with, or certainly both, are feeling overwhelmed. And first of all, just breathe. It sounds so simple, but it helps. And it can take a little of the edge off of that whelmed or overwhelmed feeling. You can try that three-breath practice we discussed, settling the mind, relaxing the body, and then asking, what's important now? Another thing you can do, and you can do right away, is to write your proactive forbearance list and then share it with your team. So put the things that you're not going to do on a list and feel good about not doing them. Not bad. And be clear with your teams uh, about what is most important in this moment and what they should be focusing on. If there's another public list that would be most important is if you can distill that down to the three things that your team is doing right now that are essential, that would be incredibly helpful for everyone. And if someone is overwhelmed, if someone you're working with is overwhelmed, don't get mad at them for being overwhelmed. This is your chance to have compassion, to move up on the care personally dimension of radical candor. Fight the temptation to micromanage. When people come to you asking for help, uh, they will often be asking you to do something very specific, like prioritize their list for them. Instead, see that as an opportunity to help them understand what's important and find their own way. For more tips, check out the show notes at radicalcandor.com slash podcast. And finally, a word from our sponsor, Kim Scott. Improvising Radical Candor introduces the feedback loop, think Groundhog Day meets The Office, a five-episode workplace comedy series starring David Allen Greer that brings to life Radical Candor's simple framework for navigating candid conversations. You'll get an hour of hilarious content about a team whose feedback fails are costing them business, improv-inspired exercises to teach everyone the skills they need to work better together, and after-episode action plans you can put into practice immediately. We're offering podcast listeners, that's you, we're offering you 10%, yes, 10% people off the self-paced e-course. Go to RadicalCandor.com slash services and enter the promo code FEEDBACK at checkout. That's RadicalCandor.com forward slash services, promo code FEEDBACK. See you next time. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.